you know, as you know, he's planning to spend much of the rest of the year on 1 Corinthians. And I thought, well, I think I want to cover all the best parts of Corinthians <laughs> while he's away. So we'll teach him a lesson about going on vacation again. <laughs> so with that in mind, let's everyone turn to 1 Corinthians. <laughs> no, seriously, I think I would be uh, run out of the church if I spoke on that. <laughs> um, in lieu of that, I wanted to talk about something that I was, I was thinking about this week. I don't think I've really ever heard a, a message on this before. Uh, speak on church, but it's something I would call uh, the sin of our times. Am I talking about immorality or some scandal amongst us that I'm going to reveal this morning? No, I think it's it's something that seems so much more mundane and really accepted, and that's the word that is cynicism. I see it living in my heart. I see it at times in the hearts of my sons, my friends, my coworkers, and I see it in the lives of other believers as well. If you look up cynicism in the dictionary, you can define it as contemptuously distrustful of human nature and motives, or in bitter disposition of distrust. Those are pretty strong words, contempt, embittered, distrust. But you see it all around us, especially if you get on the internet. If you look at, go to a YouTube video that you like, you scroll down to the comments, and chances are you're gonna have a lot of cynical comments uh, flipping comments, uh, callous comments about something related to the video. If I go to CNN.com and I scroll down and read a story, maybe it's about a tragedy or someone, you know, someone who had died, scroll down and, you, and it's amazing to see the callousness and the flippancy and, and the dismissive nature uh, that people can have in, uh, in internet contexts like that. But we, became, we can become cynical of leadership as well. Uh, Obama, to many, he's just a socialist. Or what about the Tea Party? To many, they're just a bunch of lunatics. We can become cynical of relationships. Maybe we've had a bad breakup or a series of breakups. Maybe we had a bad relationship with a parent. It doesn't stop there. What if we become disillusioned by the church? You know, this place here, which is supposed to be the safe harbor we're told to rely upon when everything else around us uh, comes crashing down. Remember that statistic that David gave a few weeks back? 66% of kids growing up in Christian homes today leave the church and their faith by the time they hit 18. 66%, two-thirds of all kids growing up in the church. Do you think they aren't cynical? <coughs> Finally, we become. what if we become cynical towards God, That's the one who is supposed to sustain us through all life's trials? I struggled with this, with this issue. Uh, expecting God to do one thing when he ended up doing another. And in the process, my faith was really rocked for some time. I discovered that things weren't, maybe weren't so black and white as what I had thought. And as a result, I got a bit cynical about being able to count on God when the, when the goings got tough. Let's back up a little bit and look, about, look at why are we cynical anyway. And I think the first thing is that we... It's, it can be a reaction against what we perceive as simple, naive, or just plain misguided at, uh, attitudes in others. Just last night, Jordan came across this site called uh, ChristiansAgainstNike.com, and I'll just—I won't get into the details. You might want to check it out. But to put it politely, I guess I would characterize that site as misguided. To put it politely, <laughs> but how do you not roll your eyes at? places or things like that when people believe certain things. 
or take a recent graduation I went to. The, uh, the message to the graduates by the, by the main speaker was, if you follow God's will, you're going to be successful. But if you don't, you're not going to be successful. And, you know, I was, as I was listening to that, I was thinking, you know, really? Is life that black and white? My life really screams a different story. And I think as I read through the, the pages of Scripture, I think it tells a different story as well. Well, when these attitudes or worldviews can become so obviously false to us, we naturally react to it. We don't want to be naive. We don't want to be simple-minded like they are. We don't want to have our heads in the sand like they are. And so cynicism can become our natural response. I think there's also a second reason why we're cynical, in this, particularly in this, you know, in, the, in this day and age, is that I think we can kind of think it's kind of cool to be cynical. It makes us feel enlightened. We feel like we're in the know, especially in the church today. Andrew Byers writes this and says, Cynicism is becoming vogue in many Christian circles as a self-identifying trademark of a new spirituality, the edgy spirit, spirituality of the jaded. Since cynicism is emerging as a hip new way to be spiritual, religious disenchantment is often hailed as a spiritual virtue. He continues on saying, Their position on the margins allows them to be close enough to the church to criticize its mistakes while maintaining a degree of allegiance to it. Cynics praise themselves for taking the red pill of reality, and then they stick it to the man by unplugging themselves from the matrix of the institutional church. And it's so easy to fall into that. However, those two reasons, I think, are, you know, are, are certainly true, but I think there's a one more fundamental reason why we become <coughs> cynical. And that's when we experience painful disillusionment after being let down by others. When the wool on pulled over our eyes is yanked off, or when the rug gets violently jerked out from underneath us. This attitude is expressed very poignantly in this uh, brief clip from uh, the Polar Express. But when our sports hero is accused of cheating, we can conclude that they all do that. Or when the popular evangelist is caught having an affair, we can say, well, they're all cheats, they're all crooks. Maybe we've been burned in a past relationship. We conclude, well, I hate men or I hate women. And when God lets us down, we conclude, it's my life. I'll do what I want. But, let's hold on a second here. Is being disillusioned all that bad? After all, Jesus himself tells us in Matthew 10:16 that we should be wise as serpents. And when you read the Old Testament prophets, they sure sound awful cynical at times. However, let's dive deeper and see the difference in what we're talking about. Cynicism is rooted in disappointment and disillusionment. But what is disillusionment? It's illumination on something. We're illuminating this, the myths that we thought were there. We're discovering the things that aren't real. And that's a good thing. And Christians who have been disillusioned are among the most discerning people in the church. All of those moments of painful discovery that they experience are, are something that others could benefit from so that they don't fall into, into those same traps. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in fact, actually thought of disillusionment with the church as, he called it a divine gift, as something that God uses to build genuine Christian communities. So the big question is, what do we do with the disillusionment that we experience? Our cynical voice is only going to be helpful if our wounds can be restored to health. The tendency, however, is to let our brokenness collapse into bitterness, and it becomes a slippery slope. 
when we experience disappointment and disillusion with others, we start out like this. We're still in the community, but we start to get defensive. Sarcasm maybe develops. Maybe we come, become skeptical, roll our eyes. We become suspicious, and over time, jaded. And then we start to move out of the community and live more out on the fringe, at least in our heads, even if we're still around others. Andrew Byers says, the fringe existence of cynics is often self-appointed. Fringe life provides enough proximity for observing ridiculous behavior in the church and enough distance for criticizing such behavior safely. He references then Jonah. Jonah's perch beyond Nineveh's walls provided him a convenient location as a spectator of Nineveh's hopefully dreadful and his, from his perspective, fate. So we become a scoffer, we become a mocker. You can see the, the slide downward. And then finally, we begin to build walls around those we're disillusioned with and, listen closely now, we assume the worst about them. We assume the worst in the others that, that hurt us. We assume the worst of their motivations. If you're into politics, you assume the worst of your political opponents. We have a, a good friend who lives out west. She's a mature believer, but if you friended her on Facebook, I don't think you would realize that's in her heart. Uh, every day, constantly, dozens of anti-Obama messages. And whatever your political beliefs are, the, the, the thing that strikes me about that is that so many of the things, the posts are assuming the worst motivations of you know someone that she disagrees with. We can also assume the worst of other Christians. Several months ago, I had lunch uh, with someone who was convinced that Cana was an emergent church. It was a church inconsistent with Orthodox Christian teaching. And the deeper I got into the conversation with him, though, I discovered it wasn't anything specific that he was pointing to. But it basically was that Cana was different from his background. It was different from his church. He never set foot into these, you know, into the doors uh, to discover the truth about what, what we are here. He has simply assumed the worst from afar. And also, we can begin to assume the worst of God, that God can't be trusted. But in each of these cases, when we assume the worst, we start to think and talk in these sweeping generalizations. Yes, disillusionment can bring great discernment, but don't you see what is happening? When cynicism takes over, then we fail to have any discernment at all. In other words, our divine gift that Bonhoeffer talked about has become a curse. Deer Hunter expresses this in their song, A Curse of Cynicism, and the lyrics are, It's a curse and a cycle of misbelief, and it keeps on happening. I am cynical. I have nothing left. I have nothing you want. Take everything. Don't leave anything. Hollow me. Take the core. Leave nothing at all. I am cynical. Nothing left. So cynicism, it deadens our heart. It kills the spirit of, of those around us. We become joyless. We lose discernment. And we kid ourselves if we think we can live out the Jesus creed, love God, love others, with a cynical heart. It seems like once you begin to dive into the implications of cynicism, it starts to become less mundane. And it starts to make me conclude that it has to be among the worst of the sins. That God can work with our moral failures. He can run to us when we are walking back to him, as we talked about earlier and when we looked at the prodigal son. But how can he work with us if we think change inside of us and in those around us are completely hopeless? We become spiritual dead weight. 
But what about Jesus? Was he cynical? I mean, I think we would obviously say he wasn't. But I think he had a good case to be. Let's review his ministry. Think about this. He gets started, has some initial positive uh, you know, enthusiasm about his ministry. People saw him as a fascinating teacher. He could tell a good story. He had these miraculous powers. And yet the, the crowds often saw him for misguided reasons. They wanted him because they wanted him a, a revolutionary war, and they wanted him as the leader. Because he gave them food. Because he provided healing. How did he fare in his hometown? Well, at first things went well. Luke says, all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. That is, until he shared a few gracious words about Gentiles. And what did they do then? They tried to throw him off a cliff. Well, his family, what about them? Well, they weren't very supportive either. John reports that not even his brothers believed in him. And Mark points out that his family went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. John the Baptist, okay, the, the precursor to, uh, to Jesus and the one who baptized him. Well, he had suspicions about Jesus as well. He asked Jesus flat out, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? At this point, would you start to feel jaded? Let's continue on. The religious leadership, Pharisees and Sadducees, they were a constant thorn in his side. They gradually moved from being reluctantly fascinated with Jesus to being irritated by him to then eventually having this hateful contempt for him. They continually harassed him in public and repeatedly sought his, his arrest. And these were the re- religious leaders who were supposed to be leading Israel. Okay, so Palm Sunday comes and he receives his royal treatment, the red carpet, uh, red carpet treatment fit for a king, as he rides into uh, the city of Jerusalem on a donkey. And yet what happens? Less than one week later, those very same crowds that were waving the palms say, they said, we have no king but Caesar. Crucify him, crucify him. Okay, we're getting down to the basics, but at least he had his disciples, right? Well, he started out with a large number of disciples, but John tells us when many of the disciples heard the hard words of Christ, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Okay, let's think about the 12 disciples. Okay, it's not really 12, it's the 11, because, well, one of them kind of traded them, or was a traitor. Scratch that. So, um, at least we have 11, and we have an inner circle of three that would always be with him when they needed him the most. That is, until the Garden of Gethsemane, when not once, but twice, but three times, Jesus came back to find him sleeping. Then lastly, what about Peter, his faithful comrade? that same night of the Garden of Gethsemane who pledged he would die alongside Christ. Well, a few hours after making that claim, he denied Jesus three times. Okay, so if all of humanity let Jesus down, at least he could rest in the joyous reality that he was God's son. And yet, what does he say on the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Yet through all this, Jesus was never cynical. Oswald Chambers points out, He says, Jesus never trusted human nature, yet he was never cynical, never suspicious, because he trusted absolutely in what he could do for human nature. Paul wasn't a cynic either. 
In fact, as we look at the study of 1 Corinthians, it beautifully illustrates this fact. Think about this, especially if you've read ahead a little bit on, uh, in terms of what, uh, of what David is preaching on. You realize that the Corinthians is really talking about the messed up lives and theology of the church of Corinth. And yet, as David shared a couple months back, when Paul opens up his book, or opens up the book of Corinthians, he calls the Corinthians saints and holy ones. And he expresses confidence that the Corinthians would stand, quote, guiltless before the Lord. Okay, these are the same people getting drunk at communion. They had split into bitter factions. One of them was sleeping with his mother-in-law. The preachers, they were all talking at once during the service. Some were chatting and not listening to anyone during the service. And others denied the resurrection. And yet, in spite of this, it's remarkable how Paul doesn't let his disappointment and disillusionment with them jade his perspective. So how do we avoid the extremes of cynicism on the one hand without just becoming you know, pie-in-the-sky idealists on the other hand? Well, I came up with the term, as I was thinking about this, I've been thinking about this for a couple of years now, and originally I came up with the term optimistic wisdom to, to describe what I thought it should be. But actually, Andrew Byers uh, came up with a term, he's an author, he came up with a term that sounds better, I think, and it's, he calls it hopeful realism. And it's really kind of a blend of Christian hope and real-world illumination. And you can see the difference here, that cynicism is destructive, hopeful realism is constructive. Cynicism turns their, their backs in disgust. Hopeful realists, on the other hand, are called to stretch out their arms in love. Cynics live on the fringe and critique from afar, whereas hopeful realists live in the midst of an imperfect community. Cynics are disengaged, while hopeful realists gently but persistently seek to engage those to whom they're called to. Cynics wash their hands and want nothing to do with others. And that's really kind of the lesson of Jonah when you think about his attitude, is what we read this morning. Whereas hopeful realists suffer and die on their behalf, like Christ, like Paul. Andrew Byers says, Hopeful realism embraces the dual realities of contemporary evil and forthcoming redemption. It lives in the tension of creation's groaning and its imminent restoration. The fall in Genesis 3 nullifies idealism, but the new, new creation nullifies cynicism. So maybe we can see this and we can, and we can say, well, see how this, this makes sense when we interact with the church. But how does hopeful realism play out in personal relationships in which we've been disillusioned and hurt? Well, it's definitely not easy. Definitely don't have, you know, it's definitely not an immediate. There's no easy solutions to that. But in the end, perhaps it comes down to having new eyes. Dostoevsky said, to love a person means to see him as God intended him to be. The theologian uh, Helmut Thielich continued on in that line. He said, Jesus gained the power to love sinners only because he saw through the filth and crust of degeneration. First and foremost, he gives us new eyes. Jesus did not identify the person with his sin, but rather saw this sin something alien, something that really did not belong to him. Jesus was able to love men because he loved right through the layer of mud. And I love how this hopeful realism is expressed in um, a brief clip I want to show you uh, from the movie uh, A Beautiful Mind. 
In this clip, Alicia Nash is talking with a friend about her difficult marriage with uh, the main character of the film. And listen to what she says. Well, in the same way, when we force ourselves to see others around us with new eyes, then they can start to look ever so slightly like the people God intended them to be. And when that happens, something happens to us as well. We are transformed ever so slightly more and more into a person of hope rather than a person of cynicism. We discover what Gabe Lyons uh, calls power of the odd. He talks about this in his, uh, in his book, The Next Christians. He says, we must recognize the power of the odd. It's the power to change, uh, to, sorry, it's the power to change the world. We can't just see the world in terms of how it is today or we'll always feel defeated. But when we see the world in terms of how things ought to be, we can do two things, he says. We can dream for the impossible, that's the hope, and we can work to see it become a reality. That's the realism. For the next Christians, the ought is the prism through which they see their mission.